In the summer of 1986, I ran sound for a Christian heavy metal band. Jesus loves you. And he can forgive you. Stop it! No matter what you've done! Can he forgive you for playing so many shitty songs? Yeah, I know. I know. Christian heavy metal. Many people think it's a joke. You suck! But it wasn't a joke to me. I loved it. Until Christian heavy metal. Well, it went and broke my heart. This is Doug Van Pelt, founder of Heaven's Metal Magazine. Welcome to 1986. I'm Chris White, writer and director of the coming-of-age music movie, Electric Jesus, a story set in a world that might seem like a foreign planet to some people. Electric Jesus, the music behind the movie, is your VIP backstage pass into this crazy world. And in the immortal words of Skip Wick, our Christian rock huckster with feet of clay and a bad toupee, The Rock and Roll Roadshow. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Episode 4, The Alternate Reality of Christian Rock. Heaven's Metal Magazine, John. Heaven's Metal Magazine. What could be better? This, is, this was a zine that I would see back in the day that was frankly a little intimidating because <laughs> it, was, it was a real metal magazine or a zine like we used to, right. used to call right. them. Um, because saying so MAGA, we didn't have time for that. We had to no, go straight no. to the zine part because it started with a Z and zine. everything heavy started with either an X or a Z. That was the yeah. 80s thing, man. Uh, <laughs> no, but Doug's, Doug's uh, publication, uh, Heaven's Metal, um, and it's so fun to go back and look at those, um, look at old, and you could just like, this was a magazine that had bands you would never have heard of, maybe never even heard of again after you know, maybe a review or an ad in one of the issues. But, I mean, it was deep into that world. Anybody who was in that world wanted to be on the pages of Doug Van Pelt's magazine. Yeah, yeah. and, and we, we pay tribute to it visually as well. You'll see HM t-shirts. Right. You'll mm -hmm. see uh, HM. We, we actually did something that is part of that memory uh fantasy thing where we took one of the actually the very first issue or issues of hm or heaven's metal and we blew it up to this crimson right. poster and it's in eric's bedroom that would have never existed in reality but we didn't care like we wanted to no. show hm heaven's metal looming over young eric's 
reality. So that was a, a, an important little piece of fantasy to put in there in the background to just have Doug's influence. So today we're going to be talking to long, one of my longest friends in this industry, a, a brother to me really, and a guy who has been a, a, an advocate for us and a, a really important source. And he's going to, he's going to really give us an insider's tour of what it was like inside this really unique uh, uh, underground niche. Um, so let's head into the interview suite and hang out with Mr. Doug Van Pelt. Where I want to start the conversation, Doug, is I'd, I'd just like to ask you to take us back to the mid 80s, 84, 85, 86, in terms of the Christian, what was arguably an underground scene, uh, metal wise, but the idea of a Christian metal scene in the 80s. What did that look like? How did that exist for the artists and for fans? I think one way to understand the subculture and the community and the tribe that was Christian heavy metal in the mid 80s is to go back a little bit and talk about the onset of rock and roll. 60s and 70s, the whole classic rock era that was being birthed, it was, a, it was a new musical language that our generation and the generations that fit into that, those decades, they feel like it, this is my generation's music. This is my unique gift to the world and it's my unique language. There was very much an coming us versus them as a generation gap in the 60s. It was talked a lot about in the 60s. And it grew in the 70s, and there was like this, there was a tribal community between rock and rollers, and you could drop yourself into any community, any city, anywhere in the world, and start talking about music. And if you had found common ground with other people, there would be a connection there. It was, it was a real connection. And so fast forward to the mid-80s, and you had uh, Christian kids who were discovering Christian rock, and the Christian rock was evolving but a little bit slow behind the times uh, stylistically. Uh, and heavy metal, which was you know birthed like Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, into the late 70s with Judas Priest and then Iron Maiden and the new wave of British heavy metal in 1980. Metal was like an extension of classic rock, an extension of guitar, like Jimi Hendrix plus some steroids. Heavy metal was more advanced than the the music you heard coming from the church. And so in the early 80s, uh, when a couple of Christian metal bands like Saint and Striper came about, it really sparked something with the Christian kids who really uh, wanted and needed something. I've often said that I think the, the greatest gift of Christian rock wasn't evangelism to the world. And certainly that did happen. A lot of people woke up and said, whoa, what is this? I'm going to listen to this message now. And it's got my attention. But by and large, I think Christian kids needed some a pastoral voice, something to, to listen to them, to motivate them, to encourage them. So anyway, when Christian heavy metal came about, it had the attention of Christian rockers and Christian hard rockers and Christian metalheads worldwide. So there's a great amount of enthusiasm, and it was kind of the epicenter of a movement that, that kind of was birthed around that time, and it exploded. And I started the Heaven's Metal magazine in 85, and I got on the ground floor of a movement, and the movement exploded in the mid-80s. By 86, it was, it was taken off vertically. It was really growing a lot. There was a lot of people. The communication barriers at the time was the U.S. postal system, and so people would send 
cassette tapes through the mail, mixtapes to each other. You know, a lot of us spent time recreating the logos of our favorite bands on our notebook pages and whatnot. But there was an underground zine or fanzine community that uh, spread the word. And these were delivered, you know, through the mail, folded up Xerox things that were cut and pasted together. And that's what kind of uh, helped connect the community because it was a worldwide thing. There was pockets of people from all over the United States, all over the world that were latching on to this music. What was it about Christianity, or even more specifically, evangelical Christianity, the kind of Christianity that wants to share the good news, share the gospel? You know, you, you mentioned a little bit about Europe and other places, but it really does seem like the epicenter was the United States. Why did that, why Christian metal? Why were Christians wanting to sing and create art in the language of, you know, hard rock? That's a great question. There was a marriage of a message and a musical style. Heavy metal uh, borrows a little bit uh, from opera and, and, and classical music and, and, and the ways of um, weaving together emotions and moods. It, it builds and lifts and drops with emotion. And so metal, metal kind of took some of those elements into classic rock, and turned up the volume and really accentuated those emotions and the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, and the, and, the, and the whole Bible, the context of the canon of scripture, encapsulates this wide range of human emotion and drama. There's war and peace and birth and death, and there's this kingdom, a supernatural, invisible kingdom of God. And in, inside the DNA of Christianity is spread the, the word. You know, our leader, Jesus Christ, he left. He died and he rose again and he hung out with the disciples as a resurrected man and for a period of about 50 days or so and he, he, he talked with them but he was basically setting them up for his departure and he said multiple times, I'm going to leave but it's a good thing because I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit and basically he handed off the mission of, of his whole movement and the kingdom of God to mortal men, to us. And so part of the DNA of Christianity is spreading the message and word of mouth, sharing this, this message with people. And so heavy metal merging with Christianity was such a dynamic marriage of musical style because you have those elements of what a passionate message matched with passionate music. You could get as loud and intense as you want to with metal Whereas you're, you're limited in pop music, you're limited in country, you're limited in other genres where you don't have the, the rise and the fall and the, and the dynamics that are so far apart, the dichotomy of, of shades of light and darkness and, and uh, light and heavy. So Christian heavy metal was just like a, a perfect, perfect storm. Was it at all uh, driven or enhanced or expanded by the ideas of... Um the devil's music or like satanic music and metal because i like at the time there was a little bit of what we would call the satanic panic when you know there are secular non-christian metal bands that are sort of putting forward uh you know let's have a party in hell you know 
praise the devil, <laughs> six six six, the mark of the beast, all that kind of stuff, as if that that evil. So that's kind of playing into what you're saying. This operatic, good versus evil, uh, dramatic uh, music, right? And so the Christian metal is kind of a a response is is also pushing against that too, right? Yeah, it's very much uh, a, a good versus evil kind of thing where you've got uh, a lot of artists that's going back to the 60s and the mystical spiritual yearnings of the 60s and the hippie movement and and uh, and then people that were getting involved in the occult and being mysterious and the Rolling Stone, the Goathead Soup and all that stuff. It was an element in rock and roll that made it dangerous. Besides the, the loud music, just the lyrics were dangerous. And, and so Christian rockers and Christian metalheads to come in and, and kind of fight back against that. And a lot of, that's why uh, the song Commandos for Christ and the lyrics in, in the Electric Jesus are, are so fitting with that era because there was a lot of, we are battling good versus evil here and we are standing up and raising this holy standard to this world standard here. And we're, we're going to the marketplace of ideas and sharing our idea right there where it happens. And you had a captive audience. And so there was a, a little bit of openness there with an outsider to Christianity to listen to um, Christian metal. And of course, there was some resistance there. There was some us versus them, secular versus Christian battles. Like here in Austin, Texas, when a Christian rock show or a Christian metal show would come to town, I would endeavor to put up flyers around town. And within minutes, literally minutes, those flyers would be torn down or replaced with other uh, heavy metal flyers. So there was, I remember when I had my copies of Heaven's Metal, and I would take my master copies in my backpack. I was praying for spiritual protection against demonic forces and some people that were demonically influenced that would attack me, rip open my backpack, and take out my master copies. I literally had a fear of that, as crazy as that sounds, because I, I felt like I was doing something to change the world. I was going to battle in my own way with my own, my little Xerox uh, fanzine, soon to be magazine, and so there's. The whole element, the whole concept of spiritual warfare, of a battle going on in the invisible world, uh, this music, you know, fueled that. It reinforced that concept with the the rise of satanic metal and artists using the occult in their lyrics and really attracting crowds with that. People, I remember when I saw Black Sabbath as a sophomore in high school at Anaheim Stadium in the September of 78, I saw Black Sabbath fans that were like dressed as a Grim Reaper and some upside down crosses made of cardboard. And I saw just some freaky people that I'd never been exposed to before. And uh, there's kind of a macabre uh, attraction to, to that whole dark side. And so Christian heavy metal really was kind of a coming against that. danger you're talking about that a lot of what the secular meta was trying to do was present danger there's an excitement in that right you know um but was christian metal dangerous to did it seem dangerous to people within the church and one thing that's interesting about the whole christian rock and metal movement 
is you know going back to its origins of these of these soul-searching hippies who found Christ and wanted to use the language of their day to communicate to their peers, which was rock and roll. And so the rock and roll of the late 60s and early 70s became Christian rock. And there were people responded. There was fruit to the ministry is how people looked at it. And so Christian rock or music became a utilitarian tool in the hands of these long-haired ministers and some of these blue-haired people, they really didn't like it, but they went to these services, and, and the services were a type of ministry. There was usually this big buildup, this emotional buildup of all this music, and it brought you to this place, and then the lead singer of the band or somebody in the band threw out a sermon and had an altar call. We would like to invite you to accept this Jesus into your heart. Come down. And these blue-haired people were seeing, I don't like this music, but I see fruit. You know, converts are being made. The Christian uh, community by the mid-70s really kind of created a hunger for Christian products. And so by the time we're talking about in the mid-80s, there were a lot of Christians who wanted Christian versions of everything. So, Doug, what do you think um, are the repercussions of that? What does that do to the music? What does that do to, like, how does the music actually become almost like a unique genre? There is a whole retail arm of distribution for this whole Christian rock and metal scene. And going back to the early days, you had these businessmen who went to some of these Jesus People concerts, saw people getting saved and thought, I'm gonna invest in a record company and press vinyl so you can have you know, cassettes and eight track tapes and vinyl to sell at your, your shows or predominantly at churches. And that became, that merged into this Christian bookstore uh, market, which were selling books and Bibles. Uh, and so, and, and then in the 80s, so you had you had the Christian music being sold in Christian bookstores of all places. So it's a, a really unique uh, place of delivery for the product. It'd be fun if we could somehow shoot uh, a bonus scene someday with the band doing an in-store appearance, like from the tour in a in a bad Christian bookstore, because every band has those stories, you know. Nobody shows up, you know. Where do you think this story gets it right? You know, it, it seems accurate and crystal clear. And where do you think it kind of ventures into that dreamlike? Uh, fantasy sort of realm where eh, it wasn't really quite like this. What, what are your impressions of the, the story on that level? Gosh, nothing glaringly points out to me as far as inaccurate. Some of them were a little bit, they were a little bit of a spoof nature or they exaggerated certain things like the, the whole us versus them mentality at, at the purgatory club where the, all the non-believers were mean and rude to the Christians and they spotted them and pointed them out persecuted them with with ridicule that happened from time to time but there was a lot of camaraderie there there was a lot of oh you know and conversations and people treated each other with class and dignity on both sides the part about the teenage angst and the in the in the sexual tension with the characters you know obviously that exists and especially in the american culture uh so i think they got that right they got like like the when the drummer was smirking 
at the at the pastor played by Judd Nelson, who was talking about the evils of rock and roll and the, some of the lyrics that were out there, and he was kind of smirking and cracking up. There was that knowledge of debased things amongst people in the Christian circles, and uh, there's humor there. The the whole the the zeal to make Jesus famous and the militaristic themes, the us versus them and the soldiers for Christ uh, motif that was carried on. That was exaggerated, but for a good reason because it was accurate. It, it, it kind of it took it took that element of a lot of Christian metal out there and just magnified it, and they did it in a good way. A Commandos for Christ is a is a good song. It kind of stands on its own. It's also hilarious. The dress was pretty accurate. You had people that uh, were trying to look cool who weren't from uh, the streets. They didn't re- they didn't have cool as part of their DNA. They picked up cool from the from where they saw it magazines, movies, TV, friends at school, and they were trying to copy that. I think that was accurate. Well, so that's kind of a that's kind of a wrap, though, against Christian music, especially maybe in the 80s, maybe more so than in the 90s. But the idea being that Christians, Christian audiences maybe were a little bit more forgiving if the bands weren't that great because the message was important. Like you said earlier, the fruit, they're, they're making, you know, people, converts were happening, conversions were happening, lives are being changed. So, you know, you're not the best music I've ever heard, but who cares? This is for Jesus anyway, so it doesn't matter. It, I think Christian music probably fairly gets that rap a little bit in the in the era we're talking about, the 80s. Yeah, an analogy I used to use back in the day was uh, if I wanted to put some of my young daughter's artwork in the hallway of the church, my pastor might say, okay, Doug, we'll put it in the bulletin board in the Sunday school area for a couple of weeks. But by and large, unless it's excellent art, it's not going to be displayed in front of lots of people. And you're certainly not going to take it to the museum, the Chicago Institute of Art, and get some mediocre piece of craft put up on the wall. It's got to excel at the at the level of quality that is the standard. And and, and so there is that because, you know, going back to that analogy, well, well it's, it's your local church. And yeah, Doug, we all know your daughter. And yeah, we'll put that, you know, there is that, that sense of uh, forgiveness, of, of lesser quality art because it's a small community. But you multiply that and you take down those walls and you have to compete in the real world. So it's kind of a, a, a level of progress and excellence that separates the sheep and the goats. But don't you think there's also even kind of baked in beyond just the skill of the music, there's the intent behind the music that, that if like you said you you said that it was a utilitarian tool that that if a if a christian artist in the 80s and i I would agree that most not all there were certainly examples of artists that weren't doing this but if if a christian rock band in the 80s was out to get people saved to basically convince them and win an argument there is a god and jesus is his son and you need to accept him and here's the here's the argument we're going to do a show and the show is designed to earn us a chance to preach and if I'm a good preacher I'm gonna win an argument with you right now and you're gonna accept my argument and you're gonna come forward and and um, have a salvation experience by uh, accepting my proposition you know and then you're gonna 
be a Christian, right? And 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 if that was if all of the great art, even of the best bands, if that was really the purpose behind what they were doing musically, that would be very different than an artist who was the artist who says, I've got this v truth, I've got this sense of the world, I've got this uh, way of seeing things, and I'm going to make some great art, and I'm going to try to spread this through my art and just let it be. And, and so that, that seems to be where the artists kind of shifted in the 90s. Do you have any sense of kind of wh what caused that shift or uh, what changed between the mid 80s and the 90s that, that led to that? Or Yeah, I think it could be confusing for our, some of our audience who, who is listening to this conversation and going, what, what is Christian rock? Because it, it kind of doesn't exist anymore. The Christian scene that we knew in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and right after 2010 kind of slowly faded out of existence or out of the out of the camera eye but th there was very much this scene um and for a minute one explanation might be well maybe this was a move of god for a season maybe this really was a move of god in a sense there's another factor in there this invisible factor that, that seemed to bless this uh this scene that, that exploded before our eyes we all saw it happen I think a lot of the what happened with the, with the growth of Christian rock, you had you had other ideas uh, added to the mix, and other people got their chance to to speak. And people like Francis Schaeffer and people from the more liturgical uh, streams of the body of Christ shared their message about art and art being a, a good and valid vocation. And so I think that message started to to get accepted and to creep in and to get people's attention. And so you had artists that developed with that model and like the analogy i used before when you had successful bands who were using that model all of a sudden here was a new model that, that the teenage kids were seeing and they replicated that with their band that evolved into the next generation and the next generation so over time i think that happened kind of for those reasons is that the, the, there was a paradigm shift slightly about what is art and and you know there became a People started looking at it more critically, and I think that changed over time. Certainly publications like yours, mine, and CCM, and Harvest Rock Syndicate, we were all preaching kind of the same message. Let's get better at this, people. Let's, let's, let's strive for excellence. And I think that got into the minds and hearts of people, and I think it changed over time. So Chris, now having heard Doug recount all of this stuff from his perspective, the ultimate insider, how does this account, his account of that line up with your memory as a fan back then? Mm -hmm. Does the world of Electric Jesus, is it actually Doug's alternate universe or is it even more alternate than that? <laughs> is, it, is it sort um, of a spinoff of a spinoff? 
I, you know, I, I do have memories of uh, Heaven's Metal magazine, and uh, I had a couple of friends that were really uh, pretty close followers, and so I would come across that publication and look at it. So I know that a lot of that world was in my head when I was writing it. So I don't. I don't know that anything is uh, surprising or uh, in in his presentation of it. I do love how um, thoughtful and just succinct uh, Doug is about explaining uh, what those bands were. I mean, like if if there was any episode in this podcast that I would just say stand alone, go listen to that. That explains everything. Now go watch Electric Jesus. It'd probably be this one. Uh, just because of the clarity with which Doug just says, this is the landscape, this is what it was like. He was there, he was in it. I think he's Southern Baptist too, or was in a Southern Baptist church, I believe that's right. Um, so his very much lines up with mine in, in that scene. I love yeah. his idea of the Christian bookstore scene. I, I really hope mm-hmm. maybe as a mm-hmm. bonus thing someday we can shoot a YouTube video of 316 <laughs> doing an autograph party at a Christian bookstore yeah. and I can I can write this for you we can shoot it and okay. it'll be hilarious because this happens so many times where the band shows up nobody's there it's it's like the Spinal Tap thing is real yeah. life nobody's there i did this with a guy named rick elias who just passed away oh yeah a couple years ago was a super close friend of ours um great producer songwriter artist and rick did an in-store when true tunes hadn't even spun off into its own thing we were just the corner of a christian bookstore actually a Catholic right. store. okay and um rick was brand new artist first record out and he came to the record label was like please please let rick elias come sign records and i was, I was okay you know I know how this goes, but I don't want to say no. But I, and Rick came on a weekday afternoon, <laughs> and like 10, 15 people from my church, my friends came, and they all became lifelong Rick Elias fans. But at one point, he's standing there, and this nun is walking by, and she thinks he's the security guard. And she asked, are you the security guard? And he's like, yes, sister. Yes, I am. <laughs> it was the best thing ever. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So we got to shoot a scene where 316 is is in a Christian bookstore. And some some nun walks by and thinks Michael with that crazy jacket is like, you know. Yeah, of course. Conductor. Oh, John, for a, I'm ready we for a do sequel. Yeah, let's, I'm ready we, for a sequel. We need to I do mean, some, uh, yeah. You don't have anyway, to sell me. I'm great gonna... idea, Doug. We're going to rip it off. Exactly. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Electric Jesus Podcast. For more information about the Electric Jesus Film, visit electricjesusfilm.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, also known as the G's Team. You should also check out the Electric Jesus YouTube channel and Facebook groups for great behind-the-scenes videos, updated information about the film, and more. All links are available on the show notes page. This podcast is produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Everything on the Electric Jesus podcast is used by permission or under fair use provisions and with the exception of previously copywritten materials is the intellectual property of Blue Tape Records, LLC, and is protected by U.S. copyright law. Next time on the Electric Jesus podcast, Michael Bloodgood is a Christian metal legend. And yes, that is his real name, Michael 
Bloodgood. His band is called Bloodgood. Even if it wasn't a Christian metal band, even if it wasn't one of the greatest Christian metal bands of all time, a band should be called Bloodgood and the bass player should be Michael Bloodgood. Anyway, we're gonna to talk to Michael Bloodgood next week and find out what it was really like for bands like his to rock the flock in the 80s. Michael, if you could go back in time to the summer of 1986, knowing what you know now, what does Michael Bloodgood say to them as, he, as they go out on this journey? Uh, don't quit your day job. <laughs> Just kidding. You've got to stay in the Word of God. <laughs>